Good morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here. If you have uh, your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Joel chapter 2. We can continue along in our series in this minor prophet, and our scripture reading today comes to us in verse 18 to 32. So if you're able, as a sign of reverence and act of worship, could you please stand for the reading of God's word? And as I read this for us, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be able to apply this and to teach this and to convict you of his word this morning. So Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stretch and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things." Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the stormy locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass... Afterward, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and all your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and female servants in those days, I will pour my spirit. And I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, of blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be tuned, turned to darkness and the, mo- the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall those whom the Lord calls. And this is God's word. You could be seated at this time. Well, one of the truths about the Christian religion is that on a grammatical level, God really cares about this small little prefix called re, R-E. And in fact, if you studied Christianity before, you'll recognize that some scholars will note that the religion of Christianity preeminently is about going back or to do something again. That's why the Bible is full of words that have the prefix re, redeem, renew, revive, rebirth, reconcile, return, and really what our passage is about here this morning, restoration, to restore something to a better, if not the same quality of what it was before. And that's essentially the message of Joel, and that's why we're talking and looking at this together, the book of Joel, this minor prophet, because it gives us a crystal clear picture of how people like you and me and the brokenness and the struggles that we go through in life, that we could be restored only and completely in our relationship with God by virtue of our union with Christ. And this restoration is something that's bigger and more satisfying than anything this world may be able to offer you here this morning. 
And it doesn't mean that the good things of this world aren't satisfying. Like when you're successful, that's really good. When, you're, when your kids do well in school, when you have a victory in sports, those are things we should celebrate as a church. But what Joel is trying to tell you is that as good as those realities are, if you place your entire life on being restored in those sort of good realities, then your life will begin to crumble, it will fracture, it will fray, and eventually you'll become a shell of a human being. Because true everlasting restoration can only come through your, ver- through your union with Jesus Christ your Savior. And that's why the book of Joel is talking about restoration. Now, when you look at this passage that I've just read, it is a rich passage. There are so many things that you could trace back to the book of Genesis and carry through to the book of Revelation. I'm trying to break this down in a way that could categorize what Joel is trying to convey to us this morning. And as usual, there are three ways that God says, I'm going to restore his people. In other words, three ways that we can understand God's restoration back in the days of Joel and apply it for you and I here today. And they're broken up. All the commentators say basically the same thing. They're broken up in three sections in the passage that I've just read. So the first way that God restores his kingdom, his purpose and plan, is by restoring land and people. So that's the first way. He says, I'm going to give you back your land and I'm going to set you free from your enemies. And then secondly, God says, I'm going to restore your lost years, and I'm going to restore your shame. I'm going to give you dignity. I'm going to give you respect. I'm going to give you honor. And then the third way that kind of God blows our minds away is that he says, I'm going to give you something that actually transcends your current period and your current life circumstances. And he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit down the road, I'm going to pour my spirit on you in a way that you can never, ever imagine here today. So three ways that God, that we can understand God's restoration. First, he'll restore our land and give us our freedom. Secondly, he'll restore our lost years and our shame. And then thirdly, he's going to restore the church or people like you and me by giving us the fullness of his Holy Spirit. So that's a lot there, but we're going to scratch the surface of each one. So let's take a look and see what Joel has to share with us today. So first, the one way that we can understand God's restoration for you and I here today and the people and the readers of Joel's time is going to be through land and people. Read with me the main theme and really the kickoff verse of this section, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So this literally is going to be the main theme of the whole section. He says, I'm going to be jealous for the land and I'm going to have compassion for the people. Land and people basically are the two themes that form the backbone of this entire section. So you could trace those themes all the way down to verse 32. In all this lofty poetic language, Joel is basically saying, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to heal my people. It's traced throughout as this double backbone, this vertebrae within the passage that I've just read. So let me try to make my point. Land and people. The first thing that we recognize here is that in verse 19, we see land. It just says, I'm going to restore grain, wine, and oil, which, by the way, is exactly what Israel lost back in chapter 1, verse 10. It says, a locust will come, it's going to devastate the land, and you're going to lose your grain, wine, and oil. So we see an exact restoration and reversal. You lost grain, wine, and oil through the locust, but in my grace, I'm going to restore the land with grain, wine, and oil. And then secondly, in verse 20, he talks about people. I will remove the northerner from you, the foreign army, your invaders, your oppressors. The enemy that God restores and removes from the people of Israel gives the nation freedom 
security, and safety. So there's jealousy for the land, grain, wine, and oil, and there's going to be pity on his people. I'm going to take your captors away. The northerners are going to be sent away. And he restores the nation of Israel to its prominence and his glory through the restoration of land because he's jealous, but also through the freedom of his people because he's compassionate. Here's what I want to talk about for us today. This land as well as the people. All of this is possible because of who God is. He's jealous and he's also compassionate. Now, before we go to our second point, I want to talk about jealousy because you could talk about jealousy and pity, but I want to talk about jealousy because it's not talked about enough in the church, but it is one of the most central attributes of the Christian God, jealousy. Jealousy, friends, is a common experience, isn't it? Probably in this past week, you were jealous about something. Your children, New Life Youth, you're probably jealous about something. You're jealous about your neighbor, your classmate, your coworker, somebody in this church. It's a common experience. In fact, there's this one author by the name of Jay Perini. He did a biography on this extradited politician, and he entitled the book of this biography, Every Time a Friend Succeeds, Something Inside of Me Dies. Every Time a Friend Succeeds, Something Inside of Me Dies. And you can be honest with God here today. If this describes you, then you can relate to jealousy. Because jealousy is an everyday common experience. We crave what someone else has. We hold on too tightly to what we have. It happens all the time. It's the reason that we would have nasty names for your boyfriend or girlfriend's ex. It's the reason that many of us work too hard because we don't want to be envious of our neighbors who have more. We don't want to be outdone by our neighbors, so we want to be more gifted than them. We don't want our neighbor to have what we think we should have because we think we deserve it more than our neighbor. It's an everyday experience. It's a commonality of a human condition. Jealousy. The great and renowned atheist Bertrand Russell, he even acknowledges this and says that envy, jealousy, was one of the most potent causes of human unhappiness. And he's speaking as a non-Christian, as an atheistic philosopher. Jealousy, friends, if you experience this, and I know you have, it's lethal. It's the culprit, oftentimes, of murder and hate. And they say if it doesn't kill the body, it's going to kill the soul. Because if you ever met anybody who their entire lives for decades are consumed by jealousy, and you meet them 30 years later, and I've read testimonies about this, they're a shell of a human being. Their outlook on life is dim and dark. They're literally and physically emaciated. Because one of the truths about jealousy is that out of all the vices, even the seven deadly sins, they say jealousy is the only vice that doesn't have a temporary pleasure. Even the other vices and sins, there's a temporary pleasure that we can acknowledge. Gluttony, something when you just satisfy your gluttonous with gambling or money or chocolates or desserts, there's a moment where it feels really good. Lust, even anger, anger in the moment you release your anger, there's a sense that this feels really good. Jealousy is the only vice, the only sin that never has a positive moment, not even for a second. That's why I absolutely agree with Bertrand Russell and Jay Perini, and that's why I more importantly agree with Proverbs 27.4, because the author says this, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? It's almost a saying, these are really bad, but with jealousy, you don't have a chance. That's the nature of jealousy. 
Now, here's what I want to say for our context here today, because in verse 18, it's talking about God's jealousy. And this is maybe the surprising thing. Our culture, and you and I know jealousy to be something that eats away at us. But jealousy in of itself is a holy, good, and righteous characteristic because God is jealous. He says, because of his jealousy, I'm going to restore the land. God is jealous. We tend to assume that jealousy is something negative, but in of itself is very holy. Now, this is where the Bible has to speak and form our understanding of God. Because one guy by the name of Tim Challies, in a paraphrase I'm giving you, he said that nobody would imagine a jealous God. That's why it has to be true if it's in the Bible. Because there are a lot of gods that we can make up and fabricate in our own minds. But we would naturally create fake gods that only had characteristics we admire. A God who's loving, merciful, patient, generous, attributes like that. We would never naturally on our own think of a God that's jealous. We wouldn't do this. But the fact that it's in the Bible tells us, well, Christianity's got to be very different from any other religion out there because other religions would not make jealousy a central characteristic of the God whom they worship. In fact, the idea of jealousy is central to any concept of God. And if you don't understand God is jealous, then you don't have a Christian God. Now, case in point, in Exodus 34, 14, when he's talking about God and his people, it says, for you shall worship no other God. You're my wife. You're my husband. You're, you're my spouse. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Jealousy is so part of who God is that it says in Exodus 34, it's part of who God is in his character, in his nature. And because of his jealousy, he restores and blesses his people. It's an expression of his love for people. That's why jealousy is important. He is jealous for you and me. He is jealous for his bride. He's jealous for his church. In fact, when we follow idols and we bow down to fake gods, that's why God pursues us in his love because he's jealous for us in a holy, righteous way. When there's a threat around us through catastrophe, oppression, victimization, brokenness, pain and hurt, things that we suffer but aren't necessarily our fault, God's jealousy pursues us because he wants to heal us and restore us. In other words, this is why jealousy is holy. It's a two-sided coin. On the one hand, because God is jealous, there's a consuming jealousy that wants to destroy evil, pain, and suffering, and sin. And then there's also a pursuing jealousy that pursues people he loves like you and me, the church of Jesus Christ, a bride, and both are always active. It's going to consume evil and sin, and it'll pursue its bride and the people whom he loves. That's why the passage begins and says, God is jealous for his land and has pity on his people. Because of his jealousy, according to one commentator, the characteristic of God's jealousy drives the entire passage because he consumes the enemies of God's people and takes the northerner out. And then he pursues his people by blessing the land and restoring them back and reconciling them to himself. Jealousy is that double-sided coin, and the greatest expression of God's jealousy is found in the person of Jesus, the only one who embodies jealousy perfectly, because probably 99% of the time when we're jealous, it's sinful jealousy. Same thing with anger. Jesus embodies the perfect expression of God's jealousy. Jesus' jealousy always pursues you and me. That's why he came from heaven to earth and died on the cross, to save you and me. God was so jealous for his people in his love and his possessiveness of us, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. But Jesus was so jealous that he absorbed and consumed the wrath and punishment that you and I are supposed to get, 
But on the cross, he consumed that. He absorbed it so that it could pursue us. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's jealousy for you and us, us here today. That's why we can understand that God's jealousy is central to who he is. And that's why God's jealousy is why he restores us, both land and people. And this leads us to our second point. Because of God's jealousy, his compassion, his pity, secondly, he also restores our lost years and our shame. Now, this is going to be very practical here. Read with me verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. <coughs> He's going to restore the years. Now, let's think about this. There's, a, there's an, a New Testament scholar, a pastor. His name is Colin Smith. And this is what he talks about specifically in verse 25. He says, if you think about other areas of your life, everything else can be restored, can't it? Money can be restored. Property can be restored. Broken down cars can be restored. Some people do this as a living for a hobby. Strip painting and old houses can be restored. Relationships can be restored. But one thing that can never be restored in the same way is time. Time flies and it doesn't return. Years pass and we never get them back. So you think, how in the world does Joel say, I will restore to you the years of the swarming locusts has eaten? Now, the easiest way to understand that is basically saying to a farming culture, you lost four years of your agriculture, you lost your, eco your economy, your purchasing power, your sustenance, your ability to provide. No, people get it. That was their entire lives. It's basically, as I said, you lost everything in the stock market, a real estate boom imploded, or everything on crypto. You lost everything. So it could say, well, on year five, I'm going to give you everything you lost in the first four years. And there's an element of truth to that. But it doesn't really get at it in the deepest way that I think Joel is trying to talk about. He's not just talking about monetary restoration, getting your dollar back. He's talking about something different. So the question is, how does God restore the lost years of your life, the locust years? Well, it also means, do you have lost years? Do you have regrets that you spent your time in ways that you thought, I kind of wasted my years? Do you have that? Well, here's one way to kind of think through this. I'm stretching the application, but I think it's a legitimate application to apply for us today. What do locust years look like for us today? Lost years. These are just suggestions for you to kind of think through. Lost years could be fruitless years. Maybe you spent all this money and time in your education, got your degree, and I think millennials hear this all the time because they say, Gen X, you know, we made a, an economy and a job market that's really bad, so they're born into a bad economy. I get it. But we had fruitless years and all this education. Now you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and you don't have a career to show for it. Or maybe you started a business, and it never worked, and you gave everything you got in your savings, your time, and energy, and the business was unsuccessful. And you feel like that was lost years. That's a locus here. I think that's a legitimate application. Lost years could also be painful years. You lost a loved one. You lost years because of illness. You couldn't live life in a healthy way. You had plans for the future, but it always feels a little bit empty because those are your locust years. Lost years could be selfish years. I'm thinking about people who verbally say, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't go deep. It's nominal. You live life normally. And then after a decade, you look back and say, if I really believed in Jesus, I should have lived my life this way. You know, especially people in midlife. Lost years are loveless years. Maybe there's division in the family. Maybe there's a cold marriage. 
for decades. Not a lot of deep communication and connection. Maybe some broken friendship. And you just had a lost year, a locust year, because you had loveless, relationless years. At the end of the day, lost years, even in Joel 25, verse 25, are Christless years. Christless years are locust years. The point that he's trying to make is saying you're living life apart from Jesus and he wants to do for you. You're living life not in a kingdom perspective. You think to yourself, how much foolishness I would have avoided if I lived a gospel-centered life. At the end of the day, that's what locust years are really about. So the question is this, friends. How does God restore your lost years and locust years? It's not going to be just monetarily. That's a health and wealth. So if you're thinking here, well, they got their land back, and if you think, if I believe in Jesus, God's going to give me back my house and my money, you know, maybe you lost 25% of your portfolio in the recent stock market that went into recession. Maybe you invested in Bitcoin or Ether, or God forbid, you invested in Luna, and you lost everything. God is not saying, I'm going to restore everything back. Just invest it in Ether, and you're going to get tenfold back from what you lost in Luna. Just invest in the S&P right now and buy the dip, and you're going to get 20% back. He's not talking about that. You lost value in your house, maybe you just invest it again. That's not what he's talking about. That's what, the, what we would call a health and wealth gospel. You know why? God is going to give something more. If you're just looking for monetary or purchasing power to be restored, you have a low view of God because when he restores your lost years, it's going to be something much bigger. It's going to be deeper and richer. And this is what he says. I'm going to restore your lost years, your locust years, by giving you my son. Jesus Christ, the richest, most glorious, satisfying reality that we could have. Deepening a relationship with Jesus will make up for your lost years. Because there's a kingdom heaven blessing that he'll give you, but even now you experience a life that is so much better. You could become more fruitful if you live in Jesus. You can become more satisfied if you live for Jesus. Your relationships can heal because you have gospel and grace and love that flow out of Jesus. Jesus can bring healing and wholeness to you so that you can be a light and a witness and bring honor and praise to Jesus. Now, do you know where you see this? In the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, really quickly, this rich young ruler who has the best resume, the best education, all the money in the world, he goes up to Jesus and says, how can I go to the kingdom of God? And Jesus said to him, have you followed the Ten Commandments? And he says, I followed all the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, well, prove it to me. Sell everything you have. And because he idolized all his possessions and power, he was really sad and he walked away and he couldn't give up all his possessions. Now, what's the point of that? It's trying to make the point I'm saying to you. Losters are stored in your relationship with Jesus, and this is why. In the Old Testament, physical and material possessions was a sign of God's blessing. The more land, the more cattle, the more that you had was a sign of God's blessing in the Old Testament. But it got radically transformed in the New Testament. That's why Jesus is saying, I know the Old Testament, physical material possession was a sign of God's blessing, but he tells a guy who has a lot of physical material blessing, if you want to follow me and enter into the kingdom of God, sell all that you have. Why would Jesus do this? Jewish people looking at this would be confused. This rich young ruler, Mark 10, has everything. If anyone was blessed by God, it's certainly the rich young ruler because he had all the material possessions and all the riches. Why would Jesus tell him to sell everything? And Jesus is implicitly saying the physical and material blessing of the Old Testament were foreshadow, was a pointing towards the true blessing and possession of me, the Son of God. 
And if you could see that all the blessings and all the riches in this world only point towards your relationship and deepening with Jesus, and you could sell everything else because you get so much better, as G.I. Packer says, whenever you give and turn your life to Jesus, you are always getting more and not less. That's the point of what Joel is trying to tell us. Now, it's an illustration for those of the parents who have kids in college Imagine your, your son is over in college and you, you miss your son and summer rolls around and college students have come back. You miss your son and you're looking at this picture on your iPhone at your beautiful, handsome son in first year and you're like, oh, I can't wait for him to come back to college. And finally, summer rolls around and he flies back, goes into LAX, takes an Uber, goes up into the house to surprise mom and dad and says, mom and dad are here. I'm back for summer vacation. Wouldn't it be weird if the parent just kept looking at the picture in the iPhone? Oh, I, I miss my son when the reality of the son is literally in the kitchen. He's there, but you're not embracing him, hugging him. Oh, I miss my son. What Joel is trying to say, what Mark 10 is saying, if you cherish material possessions and money in this world so much, you're like the parent who's just looking at the image and the foreshadow, all the while the reality of Jesus is right there by faith. And he's saying material possessions are good, but the reality of the person and the joy and blessings right there, give it up and come to him. That's how you restore the lost years. It's never too late to come back to God. But really quickly, he restores your lost years, but he also restores your dignity. We'll go through this a little bit quickly. If you look at verses 26 to 27, they both end on shame. So he gives you your lost years back, but he gives something deeper in the people. He gives you your dignity. He addresses a shame because verses 26 to 27 both say, my people shall never again be put to shame. Shaming, public shaming. Benjamin Rush, who once signed the Declaration of Independence, argued that the practice of shaming is universally acknowledged to be the worst punishment than death. And in fact, Shaming was an exercise that was done away with because it was too detrimental upon the human condition and psyche. The Old Testament scholar David Atkinson says that shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. We know there's something wrong with us when we experience shame, but we can't admit it. We can't identify it. There's a restlessness, and it takes weird forms when you're shaming yourself or you feel ashamed. There's a guilt that comes out. You strive to prove yourself to others. There's a rebellion because you defy authority. We assert our independence. We try to prove and desire to please each other. Something is wrong. We know the effects of it, but we fall short of understanding why is there this innate human shame that we feel, this deep identity sense that we are not happy with who we are. Psychologists, they say, help us to understand the early part of our childhoods that played into creating unnecessary shame being unloved by our parents. Entertainment distracts us from our sense of shame. Moralists try to cover up our shame by saying, do more good things, and then you could deceive yourself into being a good person. All those things are worthy to consider, but you know what the Bible says about the shame that you and I experience where there's this unease about who we are? The Bible locates the root issue of our shame in our separation from God. Living against our design as image bearers. Why is it that it says, you'll never be shamed again? Why didn't it say, you'll never be weak again? Why didn't it say, you'll never be not gifted again? You'll never be poor again? Why does it say shame? Because it's so innate to the human condition. Shame is basically being exposed. 
humiliated. That's why it's so detrimental among the younger folks when you have a picture that spreads out on social media it's because something public has been exposed. Didn't you ever, I don't know, maybe it's me, don't you ever sing a song, a praise song, or whatever song in the car, and you roll up to the red light, and you're singing on the top of your lungs, you look over to the car next to you, and they're just looking at you and kind of grinning because they notice that you're singing by yourself, and all of a sudden you feel ashamed. The reason is because you were exposed. If no one saw you, you'd feel fine. You're humiliated. You're unaccepted. Shame at the end of the day has to do with your standing before God and your standing in community. It has to be both. You may think you don't need acceptance by community, but that's how God created our reality. Opinions and people's words affect us. We're created to live in community. That's why when we're exposed, when we're unaccepted and rejected, there's a level of shame that's innate to us. And friends, for you and I, for us to be healed, of our shame to have dignity and honor as the image of God, it won't come through achievement. It won't come through a method or technique. It comes from a person, a deep personal relationship with Jesus who took on the greatest personal and public shame ever. The Son of God, the King of Kings, come into this world ridiculed like a slave, like a criminal, dying a criminal's death, Separated from his people, separated from his family, the Father, upon the cross of Jesus Christ, he bore the greatest ironic shame that this world had to offer. He understood and went through universal shame. He took on your shame and me, and in return, he gives us, he gives us his righteousness, his honor. We have dignity because of the acceptance we have. That's why it says in Joel chapter 2 and verses 26 to 27, I will always be your God. That's the basis of our dignity. You'll never be put to shame because I'll never leave you. It doesn't say achievements. It's not anything that you can do or accomplish that I know you feel shame. That's your sin. That's your brokenness. In 26 to 27, how does he deal with our shame and give us dignity? It says it's not through accomplishments. It's not because you're the greatest nation. It says I'm going to give you dignity because I'm going to be your God. And I'm never going to leave you. And in fact, we look later, he's going to give us his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, as I said, to take on cosmic shame, universal shame, so that we can have eternal dignity. And that leads us quickly to our last point. Part of the way that Jesus comes into this world and part of the way that God sends Jesus to deal with our sin and brokenness and shame is in this prophecy, if you didn't realize, one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible comes to us in verses 28 to 29. Let's read this together. And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, that's all humanity. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. Now one thing to note is that it's interesting, if you ever thought about this, you've grown up in the church, the Bible likes to use that phrase, pour out the spirit. Now it's interesting, it's kind of conveying this idea that the Holy Spirit is a liquid now, why didn't it just say, I'm going to give it to you? I'm going to give you my spirit. Why didn't it say, I'm going to attach it to you? I'm going to drop it. But it says, I'm going to pour out your spirit. Because I think it conveys this sort of Niagara Falls that is the spirit so abundant, it's going to saturate everything, all of us. We're going to swim around in the Holy Spirit. That's the riches and the blessing that Joel prophesies and that we see in Acts chapter 2. See, Joel's audience would know this idea of pouring this word and imagery very well because they understood in the Old Testament God would pour out his anger 
or that even in the Old Testament processes and ritual blessings and sacrifices, they would pour the blood offering or the drink offering. So they understood this. When Joel says, I'm going to pour out the Spirit, they understood this, and it probably made them excited. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given sporadically, selectively to individuals or groups. It was only given at momentary positions, such as prophets or kings or warriors or leaders. It was sporadic and it was selective. But ultimately, what Joel is saying is that this Holy Spirit, this overflowing blessing, the fullness of the Spirit, which in the Old Testament for years was only given to a select few, Joel is saying there's one day where everybody's going to have this Holy Spirit. It's going to transcend gender because it says it's going to come to men and women. It's going to transcend social classes because it's going to go to the people who are high up, but also the servants. And commentators say the servants in Joel chapter 2 are probably the bottom rung of the socioeconomic social strata. It transcends position society, age because there's old and young, and gender. When the Spirit is poured out, there are going to be all kinds of community and blessing and prophesying. That's why when you look at 28 to 29, when the Spirit comes, what happens? They don't just start floating up in the air. It says they'll dream dreams and they'll have visions and they're going to prophesy. The Spirit in the New Testament works in the same way. Do you know where we see the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2? Bible study question. Where do we see the fulfillment of this? Well, it comes to only prophets and kings, but it's going to be given to everyone, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, everyone, all flesh. Where do we see the fulfillment? Acts chapter 2. What is Acts chapter 2? It's going to be where a lot of charismatics go to this passage and say, this is why we, we can pray in tongues today. That's a different issue. I don't think it's talking about tongues because this is not about an individual ecstatic experience. But in Acts chapter 2, we see the prophet of Joel being fulfilled because the Holy Spirit comes. And you know what you have? The birth of the New Testament church, you and I. Peter even quotes Joel in chapter 2, verse 16, and he says, this is what Joel has said. The Holy Spirit came. There's a hundred people. They started speaking in different tongues, known human languages. People started getting baptized. The gospel was preached, and the church exploded. That was the fulfillment. You know what that means? You and I here today, if you believe in Jesus, we have the fullness of the Spirit, and it teaches us the Bible because the heart-opening work of the Spirit always works together with the mind-informing work of the Bible. So what all the people in the Old Testament so desperately craved, they wanted this Spirit. You and I, because we're past Pentecost, have the fullness of the Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, in a way that people in Joel's time could never have imagined. We are in a richer state spiritually than anyone in the history of Christianity. We have the fullness of Jesus Christ. We have the restoration. We have the dignity. We have a deepening and the restoration of our locust years given to us in our relationship and our union with Jesus. Peter says so in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches it, but his life also models it. As I come to a close, how does Peter model this? Because remember, God wants to restore land which for us, our land is not going to be real estate in the best zip code in Orange County. Our land is going to be, by virtue of Jesus, our land is not going to be Canaan. It's not going to be Irvine. It's going to be the kingdom of God. And you know how he restores people through his son Jesus? is not to make us the most powerful, not to make us the smartest or the richest, 
but to make us his disciples and his light. Peter shows this. Remember the idea in the beginning when I say that the religion of Christianity preeminently cares about the prefix re? Peter shows that in his testimony as he gives a message in Acts chapter 2. Peter was one of the insider of insiders. He was really bold. He was loud. And he said, Jesus, I'm never going to reject you. And what did he do when the pressure cooker was on? He rejected Jesus three times. And then what did Jesus do after he resurrected? He went over and John, the gospel of John, gave them fish. And he goes to Peter, do you love me? Asked him three times. Poor Peter, he probably felt so guilty. Three times. I mean, one time would be enough. But three, do you love me? Peter says, Jesus, you know I did. And says, be the rock of my church. Peter's life, he rejected, neglected Jesus, and he got restored back to Christ. And if it could happen to Peter, it could happen to you. The first Peter came all bold and righteous. I'll never deny you. The second Peter was meek and broken and humble. And in some ways, he got re-petered. <laughs> I could use that as a verb. And all of you like him, we're like Peter. We, we, we talk a big game, but we fall short and we sin. But we could be repeated, just like the apostle did. Because we have received the fullness of the, of the Spirit prophesied thousands of years ago in Joel chapter 2, experienced years ago in the birth of the New Testament church, bringing us to year 2022, the fullness of the Spirit that always leads us to Jesus and applies the blessings in the Word of God so that in our brokenness, our hurt, our shame, our pain, our loss, we can be all, you and I, repeated because of the grace of Jesus. Let's turn to the Lord and pray. Lord, Father, we thank you so much that your word, which was written thousands of years ago, is still life-giving and relevant and speaks into our lives here today. A lot of us have in ways both seen and unseen, both known and unknown, brokenness and hurt and loss, both materially, relationally, mentally, emotionally. We pray that slowly but surely, by your grace, we could be restored in community with you, in the image of God. We pray that we could be all that you called us to be as light witnesses in this world. We love you with all our hearts, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.